the way that the past gets distorted ultimately obscures our understanding of social inequality and how deeply rooted it is, and it makes it feel like the natural order. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Um, We are back with a new episode. And of course, I'm excited about every episode. And though I'm a little bit biased, I think every episode is great. Um, But this discussion in particular is one that I'm really looking forward to having you listen to. And my guest today is Dr. Hajar Yesdiha. She is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California, USC, And she has recently published a book entitled The Struggle for the People's King, How Politics Transforms the Memory of the Civil Rights Movement. And as the title here captures, um, the book really explores multiple important fronts of American political society, um, both past and contemporary, uh, and really gets at several central questions to understanding not only the civil rights legacy, the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, but how that legacy becomes infused into our contemporary political discourse. Dr. Yedzdia's book is profoundly insightful uh, on a host of fronts that we cover in our conversation. So I don't want to um, belabor the point here in this short introduction, um, but I do want to, before we get started with our conversation, uh, highly recommend this book. I read it. And, you know, to be quite frank, I don't know, I, I probably wouldn't, if I if I didn't like the book, I don't know, I probably wouldn't come on here and interview the author and say this book is terrible or be critical of it in so many ways. But I guess the way that I tried to express my genuine appreciation through the book is giving it a close read and you know, really pointing out in our conversation the ways that I found it to be so insightful in a book that I think can speak to academic audience. Um, It's put out with Princeton University Press um, and, you know, obviously um, comes from an intellectual and academic perspective. But as someone who's read the book, I think it is rich in a way and compelling in a way that would speak to a wide range of audiences. And I think it speaks to anybody who is experiencing the effects of civil rights and the memory of civil rights. And one could make the argument that that is pretty much everyone in the United States. So I think it has a a wide appeal and I would strongly um, recommend checking it out. Um, it's available on Amazon and all other major booksellers. I think you can obviously buy a copy through Princeton University Press um, website directly. So in short, it's an excellent book. Um, and I really think uh, you would benefit from taking a look. Um, and I, as I mentioned before, I think our conversation does more than I can do right now, um, speaking by myself uh, for this short introduction uh, to give you an idea of what the book brings to the table and the different ways it helps us understand contemporary politics within American society. 
So before we turn it over to the conversation, I want to just um, introduce Dr. Yazdiha a bit more. As I mentioned, she is an assistant professor of sociology at USC, and her research examines the mechanisms underlying the politics of inclusion and exclusion as they shape intergroup boundaries, ethno-racial identities, and intergroup relations. Her work tends to cross subfields in the academic community, focusing both on race and ethnicity, migration, social movements, culture, and law. So as I mentioned, um, I think this is a really interesting conversation. And for me, it was quite an honor to have the author of this fantastic book on the show. Thanks so much as always for listening and for your support. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Okay, Dr. Yesdia, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Right. It is uh, really such a great opportunity to have you um, on here to discuss um, your excellent book um, that I quite enjoyed reading. Uh, And I really, I mean, first, the main title, the headline title, um, you know, uh, The Struggle for the People's King, I think is just, uh, it really works in several different ways and I think sets up um, kind of what the book digs into um, in in a really nice uh, way. So, um, the first question I wanted to ask you, and this is probably uh, one you're being used to, uh, used to being asked at this point, but and it's probably maybe a, a difficult one to answer in a simple way, but I just wanted to ask um, how this project came about. Oh, you know, I love that question. I always say that for me, the origin story is one of the most exciting things about hearing about other people's research. You're like, how did you <laughs> yes. even come up with that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me, it, there was both the specific moment and then there was also the kind of larger project that I was thinking about. So I was a graduate student. I was a scholar of race and social movements. And I was sitting there trying to think about, you know, what was I going to be studying? Everybody said, you have to study something that you're going to be really passionate about because you're going to be stuck in it for a couple of years, if not more. And sure enough, you know, this project ended up taking me like a good eight years before it was finally in print. But what it was is that I was looking at the news and this case was playing out. Maybe some of your listeners are familiar. It was the Abigail Fisher case. And she was a young white woman in Texas who was rejected from the University of Texas at Austin. And she took affirmative action to the Supreme Court under the argument that affirmative action was a form of reverse racism. So she was effectively, and her lawyers, you know, all of the kind of political performance around it, they were all invoking Dr. Martin Luther King's words to claim that he would be on her side and that he would be opposed to affirmative action because he believed in colorblindness. He didn't believe that we should be paying attention to color. And just that sort of egregious co-optation of his words of what he actually fought for, the reason he even said those words to begin with on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. All of this to me was so egregious in that moment that I had to take a pause and look into it more deeply because for me, the immediate reaction was just a lot of emotion, a lot of kind of, if I'm being honest, a little bit of outrage. And it was in looking more deeply at it that I realized this was a phenomenon that 
you know, wasn't limited to kind of these one-off rhetorical flubs, that it was an intentional strategy with a really long history. And that Black communities had been calling these misuses of King's memory, of civil rights memory, they've been calling it out for years. But for whatever reason, it wasn't getting that kind of mainstream attention that right-wingers were getting when they were using King's words in these ways. So it was really like part of tracing and putting together the puzzle pieces of those 40 years of misuses and trying to understand what they meant. You know, what are the consequences and, and what does it mean for our democracy and for our present day when you misuse the past? That's uh, uh, really fascinating. And, and I think it's interesting to kind of uh, hear the process of just, you know, on one level, OK, you're just listening to the news of the day and hearing about this one particular instance. And uh, to me, the, you know, hearing your answer it really and I don't want to sound kind of cheesy here, but I, I, I mean, I really think the, the book embodies a lot of, you know, at its best, what scholarship can be um, in terms of um, that you kind of describe the process here, like, huh, this is interesting, or this is unfortunate, or this is, you know, a travesty, however you want to put it. And uh, I, I want to dig in a little bit deeper. And I, and I can say as someone who's read through the book, um, yes, yeah, you definitely dug in quite a bit deeper and, and <laughs> were able to uncover so much, um, you know, rich and important history and um, the way these narratives have been formed, contested, recontested over um, so many decades. And, and I think that is, is one of the things that's, uh, you know, that came to me reading the book as someone who considers myself, you know, somewhat knowledgeable um, about the civil rights movement and, and, you know, also how the civil rights movement has, you know, attempts to co-opt it. And, and some of the processes you describe in the book, I mean, I, ha I felt I had a decent handle on these things. And I was just... Um, really surprised as to how much I didn't know, um, how much, you know, really lies below the surface um, that, you know, I guess what, what came to me is that, uh, you know, I, I've seen this back and forth, you know, as a probably over consumer of the news um, that you described, right? Like, you know, uh, uh, some people, you know, um, try to kind of invoke the the memory and the kind of ideas of uh, Martin Luther King. Um, there's some press back. No, 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 that's not what he was about. This is, you know, and, it is, and it's kind of just these, like, as you described, a kind of a, a one or two news cycle kind of spat. Yes. Um, but but that's kind of how I and I but I, I really like this again as showing kind of what scholarship can do is really show that there's so much more. It really uncovers a kind of um, much deeper, you know, the, the kind of classic iceberg metaphor. And there's just so much more below the surface. So um, before we dive into kind of your your exploration of, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King and his legacy and what he stood for and then further kind of how that legacy's played out in, in across several um, issue areas, sometimes in, in overlapping ways um, across decades, as, as you cover in the book. Um, I wanted to start uh, at a little bit more of a, a broader level um, because I, I thought it was a really, you know, and it's really important, I think, to understanding kind of some of the central arguments of the book and some of the discussion of um, Dr. King and his legacy um, is the, you know, this connection between politics, history, and, and memory. Um, and one of the uh, things that you juxtapose in the book that I thought was really um, a, a useful way to, to frame this and kind of get at what you're trying to analyze and, and understand and explore in the book is this, you know, distinction between collective memory and historical events. So I was wondering if you could kind of describe how those are, are different. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question, because I think it, it is central to the theory that I'm building, but it's also central to understanding 
how collective memory is very much a process of contention. And so the simple definition is, you know, where history is a kind of social scientific process, it's humanistic, it requires a set of particular tools, it's preserved in textbooks, you know, there's, uh, you know, a process of evaluation. Collective memory is much more of a political and cultural process, and so it's ongoing. And the way I put it is that simply it's a process of storytelling. It's a story about who we are as a people, and so it constructs a national identity. It can construct other identities as well. So, for example, you might have a collective memory of a place. You know, for example, what it is for me to live, you know, on the east side of LA. For example, there's a collective memory of the place. But the collective memory of the nation is one of the more powerful tools. And what I talk about is that the collective memories that hold more power in deciding who we are, are the ones that end up being the most vulnerable to co-optation, to contention, because they're the ones that actually hold the power to control the future. So it's that kind of classic Orwellian quote, you know, who controls the past controls the future. And that's always how I describe collective memory is that it's this cultural tool and it's a process, right? So it's not a static thing that just lives in a book or lives in a monument. It's a story that's constantly evolving and being debated. And there's never really full agreement over it. But you notice that some collective memories are always more fraught than others. Certainly. Yeah. And and I think, um, you know, the way you describe that, it, it helps me kind of think about how societies form and, and retain memories. And uh, I like the, the kind of notion of that there there becomes these kind of almost uh, agreed upon signifiers. And then the, the political struggle is to attach oneself to those signifiers. Is that kind of how the process you're seeing is the kind of just like these things take on a certain status as markers of, of, of a nation or markers of, of, you know, an important kind of historical phenomenon in, in, the, in the collective memory. And there becomes a struggle to kind of append one's perspective or goals to that. Is that kind of what's going on? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And I think one of the reasons collective memory is so central for present day, because I think you hear memory and you think of, oh, it's the past. It's a thing that already happened. But collective memory is a thing that's always living. It's quite alive in our everyday lives because it explains why things are the way they are. It explains power differentials. It explains why society works the way that it does. It explains the hierarchies between groups. And so collective memory helps to make sense of our present day and the world around us, which is why it ends up being sort of the cultural resource that everyone's kind of fighting over. And of course, right. those in power, the ones that really institutionalize a particular version of it to serve the status quo. Right. No. And and one thing I really liked about that kind of framing for the book and, and how you discuss it is, is I think it, it really gets at, I think, a common problem, um, you know, with students I teach and I think within the broader kind of public discourse um, and understanding that I think there's often this view of like, you know, if you want to understand history, just, you know, let's accumulate kind of factual information about what happened, who was where, you know, maybe try to, you know, understand certain motivations of why people did things. And um, that is, you know, what's going to tell us what history is. And and I think what you get at is there's a whole nother part of the process that, and, and, and I want to be clear, I think the first part is extremely important. And I think it's quite valuable um, work to really kind of etch this out. But I think there's a whole nother side of the process that, I, that your book really um, delves into in a very detailed way that 
what that all means. And that's where, for me, one of the big words that kept coming up in, in reading your book is this idea of meaning is, um, as you mentioned, almost, you know, unsolvable or un, unresolvable, irresolvable uh, is the word I'm looking for. And, you know, what does this mean is um, something that the events themselves don't tell us. I mean, I'm certainly they can point in one way or the other, or there's, there's certain kind of maybe clearer cases, but the general kind of meaning, what is the meaning of Dr. King's legacy, right? That's an almost irresolvable question um, and has to be, as you noted, you know, I like that um, notion of it, you know, being alive. It, it, it doesn't only have to be produced, it has to be consistently reproduced and, and evolve and, and so forth. And it has, it's, it's, it almost takes on a property, properties of, of a life form or something like that. Yeah. Well, and if you think about, you know, just like the, as you're talking, I'm thinking about like the Weberian idea of authority, right? It relies mm. on legitimacy. So you need people to legitimize it. And in order for the people just sort of construed broadly to legitimize it, you have to make them believe that this is the account. This is sort of the definitive account of the past. And it's the one that serves them and it helps them best make sense of their lives. And that, I mean, that's what I describe in the book as something that creates a culture of ignorance because the way that the past gets distorted ultimately obscures our understanding of social inequality and how deeply mm. rooted it is. And it makes it feel like the natural order. And so that's like a, another way that you're absolutely right. Like memory is not just the stuff you learn in the textbooks. It's the stuff that's around us every day and that helps explain who we are in relationship to other people and why things are the way they are. So I even said, like, you know, you notice probably early in the book, I say I'm not a historian and this is not a history of Dr. King or the civil rights movement. I'm very much a sociologist who's coming to the table to understand how it is that a history can get picked up and remade in all sorts of different ways for different political purposes, and then how it changes over time. So that for me, like that political and cultural process is the piece that I think can go missing because it is very easy to think of, you hear the, you know, Dr. King, you hear civil rights movement, you think of it as a thing that happened, a person who lived instead of a political and cultural process that's ongoing. And, and that kind of sets up for one of the other concepts that really stood out to me. And I, I really enjoyed them. I, I mean, one, I just love a, a really rich metaphor. And I thought this was just so rich in, in the imagery it evoked when I was reading and thinking about it. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you could explain um, a little bit more about your conception of gnarled branches, because I, I found that yes. just I, and I love the diagrams. I mean, they were it was really, I thought, um, brilliant and and really um, evoked. I mean, when I think of a gnarled branch, um, it, in, in what you were describing analytically, they just, it really jives so well. So I was wondering if you could kind of explain that concept that comes up in the book and helps kind of frame some of your discussions. Yeah. And many thanks to the graphic designers at Princeton University Press for right. helping me with that figure. I could not, I drew it by hand and it looked so bad. Oh. So I know, imagine. Um, so I, when I was thinking about this question of how collective memory gets remade, I was drawing on, I mean, there's this just really wide and rich field, as you know, of collective memory studies. And I was looking at it and a lot of the arguments thought about how memory, collective memory as it's being used is being 
enabled and constrained by its prior uses. And so it was much more a conception of memory as a kind of trajectory where, yes, it evolves, it grows in different ways, but that there is something almost linear about it since its uses are shaped by prior uses. And that wasn't what I was finding because I was finding that the uses were fragmented. And so they were so divergent, it felt to me like something quite opposite from a kind of linear trajectory. But then the other piece that I was having trouble reconciling was that even though they were divergent, they were shaped in relationship to each other. So I call this the kind of relational piece that goes into the making of collective memory, where one interpretation of the past was always shaped in opposition to another interpretation. It really relied on it. So it was much less like divergent in terms of going in different directions and much more like gnarled branches that were intertwined. So these competing branches of memory were reliant on one another and tied up in one another, but ultimately fragmenting what I saw as the treat. And so I'm happy that you liked the metaphor because I actually, (laughs) I got a little too in my head about it because part of it is that I really wanted to make clear that it wasn't just that the fragmentation began at the roots of the tree, which it does with the making of the King holiday, the ideological debates that go into the making of the King holiday that institutionalizes his memory in national memory. So that's where the fragmentation starts to some extent. But I was also trying to say something about the soil itself, that the racism, the system of power lives within the soil itself. And so, you know, when I was getting ahead of myself and trying to think about, well, then what's the solution? Part of it was we're really pulling the tree up by its roots, right? But then right. the soil is still poisoned. So, I mean, it's, I think it's all to say that, you know, the metaphor is messy. It is not a perfect <laughs> metaphor. But I do think it helps us think about the different branches of memory and how they're all twisted up in one another and ultimately make it so hard to remember just what happened and why. One of the things I really liked about it is this concept, you know, the way you framed it in terms of gnarled branches um, made me think of one of my favorite words I really like to use, especially when I'm teaching um, and, you know, trying to convince students that what they're learning is is valuable to them. <laughs> um, it's a big part of our jobs, right? So uh, is uh, I always, I always um, you know, a word I often use is granularity. And so I, I like I like this idea of gnarled branches because it gives me a sense of like this granular, like, you know, like as you kind of um, mentioned, you know, history um, and our understanding of the kind of arc of history and it's in, in the narratives around them. Um, are are often very, you know, quite a bit smoother than the reality, right? That I kind of have this mental model of like, history is like quite granular and quite bumpy and edgy and jagged and gnarled um, to to build on your metaphor. Um, But as time goes on, those tend to get smoothed out, right? You know, what was a bumpy road becomes this smooth path. And and I think um, going back and, and, you know, um, I don't know if it's a word, I'm going to make it up, gnarling, gnarling the branches that have been smooth is is, is quite um and i think it's it's valuable and intellectually and in, in terms of you know uh, understanding the past better better but i think it's valuable as you mentioned of seeing how these things create problems in in the present day so it, it's it's both and right not, yeah. not one or the other um, yeah i'm so glad you said that and you know i was also thinking about one of the other pieces of the argument that i'm trying to make is that it's easy to look at these disparate social movements that seem like they have nothing to do with one another. So, you know, I study like 11 different social movements, including like animal rights groups, you know, guns rights groups, immigrant rights, just all across the political spectrum. 
these are movements that at face value truly have nothing to do with one another. But when you actually look at the strategies they use, and one of the big findings is that every single one of these movements has used the memory of civil rights, the memory of Dr. King in different ways. When you look at that, you realize that actually they're quite intertwined because they're all using the past in particular ways for their political purposes. And the fact that they're using the same artifacts of the past says something about the kind of symbolic power that the civil rights memory holds in our society. So I think, you know, you could think about other examples. I know scholars have written extensively about how Holocaust memory, for example, is so central to the making of German identity. And, you know, I'm sure you have a ton of examples from Korea. So I think I think that's always helpful to kind of draw out how it's an example of something that's a much broader phenomenon. Mm, for sure. And and. One last thing um, before uh, we move on to discussing a little bit more about um, the the book's engagement with uh, Dr. King and his legacies, um, legacies, uh, you know, obviously there's quite a few. I wanted to, and I was actually, uh, you know, maybe this is too inside uh, baseball, don't need to know my processes, but I was going to leave this to the end, but I, then I worried that there's so much to talk about, um, it might not make it in. So I'm, I, I wanted to move it um, up front here. And I think it's, on one level, connected to the kind of conceptual framework um, we've been discussing in the, in the book, um, but it's also something that I think speaks quite significantly to you know now, um, for lack of a better term, and and how we're trying to understand a lot of these processes, and and I think that comes out of what you were discussing that are ongoing. I mean, these are you know happening right now. These sorts of struggles over memory, struggles over kind of making meaning out of history. Um, and, and there are a few places mentioned um, in the book, um, uh, you know, the, the notion of, how, you know, and I think you really get in in, in in a thoughtful way to how these things come about. And um, one of the phrases uses this kind of the, the kingmaker or dominant kingmaker model that there's uh, these institutions, um, be they in the media or elsewhere in society that kind of have um, a capacity to advance certain messaging about what, you know, um, what this memory is, what this memory means, not that they're like controlling people, but they, they are, um, you know, significantly influencing how these things are understood and disseminated, um, you know, in various, even coming from various points with uh, across the political spectrum. And so what I wanted to ask you is because you study these things and, and, you know, um, you have so much expertise, uh, I would really wanted to use this as an opportunity to think about how the the you know over the last decade maybe two decades but especially the last decade the kind of hyper fragmentation of the media environment like what you know because i you know i was thinking you know in the, in the in the 60s 50s 60s you know you had like life magazine and time magazine and mm -hmm. you know i always think of my parents my parents watched like the nightly news every night you know like religiously and they kept doing it you know well into the, you know, 2010s, you know, they're, they're like probably the, the demographic of the one people still sitting down watching the <laughs> nightly news every night. Um, and, 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 you know, th so those kinds of institutions and, and am among many others had, you know, kind of had that kind of centralizing role. Um, so what do you make of this meaning making process as it kind of intersects with like, I call it kind of like a hyper fragmentation where, you know, be it influencers or people with like popular, I mean, that's something I, I start feeling old because I really realize that like a lot of my students, I don't know uh, um, about the students you have at USC, but like a lot of them get their news from like YouTube, 
Yeah. I, that, that's, I'm such an old person. Like I read the Atlantic and like the <laughs> New York Times, you know, yes. and, but they, yeah. So, I mean, also a, a way of saying like, how do these, you know, how, how do you think that that is changing the landscape of, of memory making or will change the landscape? Cause it's still really quite unfolding as we speak, I guess. Yeah, I think it's a great question. So I, one of the things that I found that I think probably disturbed me, I don't know if I'd say the most, but disturbed me was that mainstream media, the ones that I think we would expect to probably do the best in terms of representing an accurate history, were some of the most egregious in representing the alt histories and the revisionist memories. And this is the newspapers like New York Times, right? And that was one of the big culprits. And my take on that is partly the, I think, more contemporary impulse for clicks. So you really want to represent the salacious news. So if you have, you know, for example, the Tea Party piece that opens up the book, the part where Glenn Beck is standing on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial representing the Tea Party, he is the Fox News pundit, and he is standing on the steps of Lincoln Memorial on Martin Luther King Day, holding this quote-unquote rally to restore honor, where he's claiming that the Tea Party is carrying the mantle of the civil rights movement because the civil rights movement was about individual liberties and a free market. It was about colorblindness. And so he goes on to you know, use Dr. King's words and then also in the same breath to claim that President Obama is a racist against white people. So, you know, that kind of co-optation that got so much mainstream news coverage, even if it wasn't in the service of, you know, kind of intentionally legitimizing, did over time legitimize and mainstream these alt histories to the point where, you know, you get to now and you have like an image of Trump alongside MLK holding hands in the wake of uh, affirmative action being repealed. And this was obviously a, like a meme photoshopped situation. But this is all to say that the fragmentation I would have expected to create more of an egalitarian space for uses of memory. But I think because of how deeply entrenched the revisionist memory has become, if anything, the, the memories of resistance, the ones that are more tapped into the, the truthful history are the ones that get the least coverage and probably are, you know, sort of the most fragmented in these spaces. So I think it's kind of the question of, who gets amplified? You know, what are the the memories or the versions of memory that get the airtime, that get the eyeballs? And I think the other piece that I talk about a lot in the book is that it's, of course, the right wing has used memory in the most egregious and distorted ways. But progressive groups of, as well have latched on to versions of memory that obscure the complexity of the moment, that have a kind of rosy telling of the past that do kind of buy into the colorblind idea, especially when it comes to immigrant groups. They'll often say, we're all the same, you know, we're all equal, we're Americans just like you. And it's a little bit of this assimilationist kind of strategy that unfortunately still does the harmful work of erasing the fact that the struggle for Black freedom is still very much alive and ongoing. I think that sets up to take some time to delve into a little bit of the, you know, the legacy of Dr. King him, himself, um, you know, and I, and I think it's it's always important, you know, you, you're a sociologist and, and, you know, I'm sure you're 
um, always kind of trying to grapple with these things where on the one level, obviously, um, Dr. King, Malcolm X, other figures were quite, you know, significant in this, in this movement amongst many others. Um, and, you know, uh, it's, it's in, in some ways, uh, you know, he's a central figure, um, but we don't want to kind of, you know, engage in, and I think that's part of what the book discusses, how, you know, how Martin Luther King himself came to have this stature yeah. as a kind of, um, uh, you know, embodiment of, of a whole host of things. Right. And so, but I, I, all of that said, I think it really is, um, worthwhile to dig in a little bit in terms of Dr. Martin Luther King's views and, and, and ideas about things and his, not only that, but obviously his activism and, and what he actually did. Um, and in some sense, this is where I think the, you know, the, what the book goes through in terms of understanding, um, the process of, of memory making and, and how that becomes kind of infused in, in the political discourse is that, I mean, I think there's, you know, generally not, you know, he's a fairly recent, you know, um, uh, public figure. Um, a lot of what he said and did was very public by design. So what's fascinating, I think this is a great example where I don't think there's a lot of debate over like what Martin Luther King did, um, you know, Millions, if not billions of people have seen the speech in, in the March on Washington, right? So these are not like, you know, th this isn't like digging up like, you know, old houses in, in ancient Rome or something and trying to, like we all, you know, and I think that actually makes it more interesting, right? That, that out of this kind of shared set of quite literally visual audio, you know, pretty clear accounting of, of what Martin Luther King said, believed, did, he wrote, you know, quite a bit, um, uh, but but nonetheless, there still seems to be this kind of quote unquote, and I think you referred to it in your discussion, you know, discussing the times piece controversy over this, mm -hmm. right, over, over what he meant. And so I, I and I know this is a big question, so I, I, I realize we're not going to be able to solve it uh, or or get to it all now. But two key words that I think often are at the kind of crux of this are, you know, um, uh, Dr. King's embrace of, of notions of nonviolence and, um, you know, for lack of a better term, racial reconciliation. Right. And mm -hmm. I, and I wanted to give you, you know, an opportunity to think like what, you know, and, and not, um, of course, speak for, you know, um, Martin Luther King, but in your understanding and in your close reading of his work, like what, you know, what did he mean by nonviolence and reconciliation? Because I think those are at the crux of a lot of how these things are co-opted and perhaps even put to purposes that are antithetical to their original intent. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Well, and I also want to go back to something you said, which is the really popular familiarity with the dream speech, which if we're being honest, is really only with that one part of it, right? right. So the part that we all, I mean, the part that I watched in elementary school for the first time, and it still gives me chills, is that part where he talks about his dream. But of course, that was just one part of a speech that began with a set of demands that began with a much kind of stronger and, uh, dare I say, more angry tone because he was talking about how they had come to the nation's capital to cash in their check, right? That the promissory note, the promissory note of America had not been fulfilled. And so he was there making a set of demands that I think were we to learn the full version of the speech, were we even to learn just that part of the speech, I think we would think quite differently about what he stood for and what he was there claiming. Because I even, I say this a lot, but when I think back on my elementary school education, I grew up in Northern Virginia, you know, outside DC. So a very kind of, yeah, 
political area. All of our field trips were into Washington, D.C. and seeing all the museums and monuments. And I think about how what I remember of our education in history was that the textbook seemed to end after the civil rights movement. And I could be forgetting, right. like maybe we had a little bit on Vietnam. I don't know. And maybe it was just like we were public school. Like they just hadn't bought new books. Well, it's almost like the equation of America solved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like well, solved that's the just equation. it. Yes, that's just it. Is that I think that's been part of the mythologizing of Dr. King and the civil rights movement is using it as this marker of the end of racism. So even the dream speech, it's, I, I don't know that, especially children, I think they probably think of that as like the final moment. This is 1963. There's still a lot to come. But right. well, there's still a lot going on, too. Yes. I mean, in terms of just brutal, brutal, brutal violence, you know, yes. murder, um, you know, like they, they, yeah, things are far from resolved in truly, 1963. Truly, truly. Um, many Southern senators uh, casually using the N-word in the Senate that's um, right. repeatedly, you know, yes. that went on until the 70s, actually. Yeah. So, yes. yeah. Right. And then it's like, then you had the Southern strategy and they just coded it, but you know, meant the exact same thing. But, mm. um, but you know, that's all to say that I think there's the piece of King that we all know very well, but it's also a piece that's been decontextualized in strategic ways. And so when we think about his larger legacy, I think the piece that uh, is really critical, it's also the piece that I think has been drawn more to the fore in the sort of uprisings after Black Lives Matter is the piece about King being opposed to the triple evils. So he wasn't just fighting racism. He was also fighting capitalism and he was also fighting militarism. So he was really outspoken at the end of his life about Vietnam. He was really outspoken at the end of his life about the evils of extreme poverty and the fact that it was allowed to exist in this nation that was so rich. The fact that people could be so poor when some people had so much. And so I think it's the radical king, the what some call the inconvenient king. That's the king that I think needs to be drawn to the fore more for us to understand what his legacy really means. But then thinking about, you know, your question as well, when they think about nonviolence, they forget that nonviolence for King was about disruption. So it was not about nonviolence like we're going to put on happy faces and put on our nice suits and make you feel very comfortable. It was about creating discomfort, about bringing the underlying tension to the fore. And I think, should people learn more about what civil rights activists actually did, which, for example, included marching down and shutting down highways? And I remember after Black Lives Matter did that, so many politicians were like, oh, Martin Luther King would be so ashamed of this movement. You know, he would right. never do that. And we're like, no, we literally did that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, the revisionist piece, but then it's also a kind of strategic obfuscation where if you don't remember just how radical he was and the movement was, right? It, it's like you were saying, we like to uphold him as the kind of great man, but there's no great man theory here. There were a lot of people behind him and there are a lot of people that honestly shaped him, including his own wife, civil rights activist in her own right, Coretta Scott King. And she was anti-war and, and involved in the Vietnam protests before he was. So- I think all of these pieces that, again, as I said, I was not a historian coming into it. I didn't think I would learn as much history as I did since I was really more centered on the misuses. But of course, the misuses take you to what the real history was. And I learned so much that frankly opened my eyes too. 
Yeah, well, just um, hearing you kind of recount some of uh, your own personal uh, history really uh, took me back. Uh, uh, I went to college at Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, oh. and I was really, you know, I just feel it's one of the, you know, blessed with one of the best opportunities of my intellectual life came when I was, you know, a 20 year old sophomore. Um, I was able to take a class with James Farmer, who was a professor at Mary Washington. And, oh, my um, gosh. So when you were talking about, you know, there, there were many other um, leaders in, in thinking about Virginia. And um, yeah, and I, it was actually the last class he taught at Mary Washington. Sadly, he passed away, I think, about a year after that. Um, so I, I really and um, he talked, you know, quite openly about, you know, his kind of some sometimes feeling he didn't get the credit he deserved and so forth. And, and you know, talking about the, the really visceral experiences of the Freedom Riders. And when you in the chapter on um, immigration um, and discussions of that and talking about the new Freedom Rides, it really took me back to, um, yeah, I mean, and I don't want to be like cheesy, but I, I really was in awe. And, 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 and I remember being quite riveted just listening to this person um, who is such a central figure in, in American history. Um, tell their story. So, uh, yeah, That's just uh, incredible. I'm so jealous. Yeah. I, w I went to UVA and Julian right. Bond also taught a class on civil rights. I just never got in off the wait list. So, right. No, <laughs> I was the same. Yeah. I got really, really lucky. And, um, um, you know, and I'm, I'm really happy, uh, that Mary, there is a statue of James Farmer on Mary Washington's campus today, which oh, I, I still don't think they've changed to like the name of Lee Hall. So, you know, they missed yeah. some yeah, more work to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, so, uh, one other thing I want to think about, you know, that comes up in the book and I think it's an important way to think about how we ended up, um, how we, you know, the Royal, we, mm -hmm. um, uh, ended up with, you know, this kind of, um, um, emergence of Dr. King rather than being this often reviled, um, by most white Americans disliked, um, you know, if not hated, um, figure to this kind of lotus star of not only civil rights, but this idea of representing the promise of America and the, the achievements of America. Um, and one way to think about how that came about is how he was put in juxtaposition with like people like Malcolm X or or the Black Panthers, Huey Newton and, and other figures like that, Bobby Rush and so forth. Um, they, that that often took a, a much more um, and, and I think the word can be misused, but you know, a much more militant, a much more steadfast, maybe is a better way to put it, kind of approach to these things and how that became part of the kind of myth making of Martin Luther King as a kind of, you know, lovey dovey, peaceful figure, which, as you mentioned, was, you know, absolutely not true. And, and he, was, he was quite confrontational in his own right. Um, but I, I think w when I was thinking about that, the, the kind of different, you know, approaches, you know, uh, between particularly Malcolm X and um, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, perhaps the one area that they kind of really diverged on was, was, was America redeemable, right? And, and I think Martin Luther King believed, yes, with many, 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 many caveats, Whereas Malcolm X, um, you know, generally, no, right? For Black Americans, America was irredeemable. It was, it was a, a foreign land that Black Americans would never be welcome. Um, so, uh, and I think that, um, and, and, and in some ways, that kind of more, you know, steadfast kind of rejection of the promise of America or America as any sort of place of hope for um, uh, Black people or other minority groups was, you know, a way that Martin Luther King 
turned from, again, somebody that most white Americans disliked or hated to somebody that was seen as this kind of peace loving, you know, everyone let's get along kind of, you know, figure. Is that, is that you know, I don't know. That's kind of how, how I, I, I took away reading from the book. Do you think that's, that's part of the story? Yeah. So I think the construction of the kind of symbolic boundary, if you will, between the civil rights movement and black nationalism, black power movements was really intentional. You're absolutely right. It was so important to draw that that deep binary of kind of good, peaceful, America-loving versus a real threat to America um, and a kind of way to separate the activists as if they were not you know, working sort of towards similar goals, which frankly they were. And I think that's one of the pieces that gets lost. Um, I, I think it's actually been complicated a lot more in the past decade or so, uh, just kind of complicating the narrative that King and MLK, like, or sorry, King and Malcolm X hated each other. Like they, they didn't. Right. And actually my, my reading too, is that by the end of his life, King really wasn't sure that America was redeemable. I actually think, you know, like when you study his, his trajectory and his kind of his evolution of thinking, his evolution of experience and the, the boundaries he kept bumping up against, in spite of the firmest commitment to Christianity and these deep ideals of humanity and faith in people and finding that America didn't want to budge, you know, I think, I think that frustration comes through when you listen to some of those speeches at the end, you know, like when he's calling America, the the greatest purveyor of violence. Um, And I think even when you hear now, I mean, there's a wonderful documentary, I can't remember its name, but it's about like King's last few days. Maybe it's even called something like this. And you see just how kind of depressed he was. He he had gotten to a place where I think he really didn't have a lot of hope in America. Although, I mean, you know, one of his quotes is that he criticizes America because he loves her and he wants her to stand as a moral example to the world. I wonder a bit, you know, how much of this was just because he knew that that was necessary, that political performance was necessary. But I also think this isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? I actually think this is what pushed him to think more in global terms, to think about humanity across borders and shared struggles across race and class with like the Poor People's Campaign, for example. So it's that I think he did not think that the system of power was going to give itself up and that he was coming to understand very similar to Malcolm X, that the power came from the people from below. Right. No. And, and I think amongst the many tragedies surrounding both of their assassinations, I mean, the, the fact that they were, um, you know, murdered. Um, so, um, you know, at such, at both for, you know, far too young an age, yeah. um, because, you know, as you mentioned, in some ways, um, Martin Luther King seemed to be coming more towards, you know, some, some affinity towards the views of Malcolm X in terms of the, the, the potential redeemability of, of the U of the United States. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, Malcolm X, um, through his own kind of process and journey and leaving the nation of Islam became, you know, somewhat more open to, uh, again, with many, many caveats, um, the notion of, of white allyship or allyship outside of black Americans yeah. and, and so forth. Right. And so there was a kind of slow bending arc that was seemed to be putting them on a, on a somewhat similar trajectory. And, and who knows? Um, that's all speculation. What would have happened? But I mean, that adds kind of almost more to the tragedy of losing these kind of two towering figures of um, American political and social life. I, I, I've often Truly. thought about yeah. and. 
and in hearing you talk, I mean, I think <clears throat> for me, um, uh, in, in, in that's kind of, uh, um, you know, agreeing with what you're saying or building on what you're saying, um, this juxtaposition of, of, uh, particularly Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, there is some veracity to it. And, and as you mentioned, particularly in their earlier parts of their careers. Um, but I think that, you know, glosses over. And I wanted to circle back to that term, this notion of reconciliation is that I think it's one thing to say that Malcolm, that Martin Luther King had some abiding belief in, in reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Um, and another to say like what that, you know, for him, and I wanted to go all the way back to your kind of, um, to the, to the tree metaphor, um, you know, that I think for very much for, for Martin Luther King, um, any notion of reconciliation or the fulfillment of a society where blacks and whites and Latinos and, and native people were able to live in a, in a, in a zone of real equality did involve ripping out that tree. Yes. Right. I think that part gets lost. It wasn't just like, you know, just, uh, be, you know, be nice to, you know, <laughs> yeah. the person around you. It was like, no, we really reconciliation. And, and I think the, the key word in that um, famous speech, as you noted, there was a lot other, you know, different parts of the speech that don't get the same play um, for a whole host of reasons. But uh, um, I also think that what, what kind of gets lost in that is that I have a dream, a dream, I, I think really means like a, like, a, like a kind of dream that like this might, you know, almost like it probably can't happen. Like a yeah. dream, you know, most people when they say they have a dream, they're, they're kind of intimating that it's probably not going to happen. Right. Yes. And yes. so this uh, and that that dream to me is such a key word. I mean, literally, it's called the I have a dream speech. And it's like, yeah, he and I think that gets at how what he saw reconciliation is really entailing, which was a complete, you know, quasi perhaps even full on revolutionary overhaul of the social order. Yes. Um, yeah. Right. No, that's spot on. And it's like the epigraph I have in the book. It's so, you know, we remember King through his dream, but. What he said was that the difference between a dreamer and a visionary is that a dreamer has his eyes closed and a visionary has his eyes open. Right. So, mm. yeah, I mean, I think he was he was calling for us to be the visionaries like his, right. his vision was of right. eradicating systemic racism so that the dream could be realized. That was something I wanted to um, hear you um, talk a little bit about. And I think especially um, to the extent that I, we have any young listeners or people under 40, maybe, um, you know, that because and, and I would say it's even somewhat, uh, not somewhat, it was quite um, eye opening to me because I did know there was a good deal of controversy around establishing um, the Martin Luther King holiday in January. And, you know, that now is pretty much universally celebrated and commemorated across the U.S. And, and it actually touched off a, a kind of weird way to remember the controversy. I do remember because I was really into sports and used to watch, you know, football and basketball and everything. And I do remember the Super Bowl getting pulled out of Arizona um, because they didn't you know, there, there wasn't, uh, they didn't agree to recognize the, the Martin Luther King holiday. Oh, wow. um, so, so I do I had that, you know, and I guess that's a, 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 you know, an interesting window into like how I remember that. But all of that said, despite, you know, that one memory from my childhood, I really was um, 
you know, and I, I'm not overstating here, I was quite riveted by that section of about how much of this was a struggle, how long it went on, how much opposition it faced. Because again, I think, you know, um, people in, you know, they're maybe in their 20s or 30s. Um, and, and maybe that's in some sense a good thing. But for them, like the Martin Luther King holiday is just like, uh, because he's a, he's an American hero. He has yeah. a holiday you know, case closed, like, and in some ways, going back to what you're talking about, your, you know, um, education growing up, like, you know, um, 1964 came, racism ended, and Martin Luther King was the hero of that story. Now he has a holiday, you know, and like, I think the, 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 again, the granularity to go back to the, one of my favorite words mm -hmm. that you go get into in terms of the process of, of actually getting to the point where there was a Martin Luther King holiday. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, because I, I found that fascinating and, and really eye-opening. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy you drew that out because I was even thinking about, like, when I was growing up in Virginia, Martin Luther King holiday, I think it was only institutionalized um, with the agreement that we would also have a Robert E. Lee holiday at the same time. So and Stonewall Jackson. Yes, that was yes, shocking. Yeah, Lee, yeah. Lee Jackson King Day. That's what it was. Yes, Lee. Sorry, I just snapped into the microphone. Um, no, that's right. But like, I think so. I think that says something about the the tension that's always built into the making of a, a collective memory that's so central for national identity. And in this case, the debates, the sort of fundamental ideological debates about is Martin Luther King Jr. a worthy national uh, sort of symbol? Like, is he somebody worthy of commemoration at a national level where we're actually going to be spending taxpayer monies? And that was like one of the arguments, right? It's like, it's going to cost too much money if we have to give people, you know, a day off to celebrate this guy. He's not worth it. But I think part of it is really understanding that those deep ideological debates were the making of the collective memory in a fragmented way. So the, the divides at the base of this tree the ones that end up turning into these gnarled branches. And so it's like on the one side, you have the folks who were so deeply opposed to the King holiday, which includes President Reagan, who eventually signs it into law. And then on the other side, those who believed he deserved commemoration, that civil rights movement deserved commemoration, and that it would be a process of healing to commemorate him, that it would be a way to you know, make amends in some way to engage in some form of reckoning with history and what it meant for him to be killed in that way for his cause. And I think the, the piece that struck me the most in really getting into the nitty gritty was the fact that Reagan didn't just dislike King, he really kind of hated him. And he was actively opposed to civil rights and worked, you know, fought tooth and nail to make sure that he rolled back as many of them as he could in, in his presidency. And when he's signing the King holiday into law, finally, after years of debate and contention and avoidance, he's doing it to appeal to white moderates. So it's not even a, a kind of show of good faith for black communities. He doesn't even expect to reach them. It's really to show white moderates like, hey, I'm actually not that, you know, I'm not that right wing. You can support me. I'm not a racist. And when his allies are, you know, his allies are so angry. They're like, you know, bro, what are you doing? And he's writing to them and he's like, this is written, it's like in the Reagan papers. And he's like, rest assured, we're going to remember a very selective version of Dr. King. And so he uses really? King. Wow. Yeah, yes. yeah. And he uses King as the symbol of neoliberalism where, you know, he's really celebrating the private the privatization. He's celebrating the free market. He's celebrating individual liberties. And the key is he's really celebrating 
the end of racism and the beginning of a colorblind era where King's dream has been achieved. And so now if people want to claim there's racism, they are now the racists because we don't talk about race anymore. So if you want to complain about racism, you must be the racist. You're the problem. And it really becomes this way to perpetuate a myth of meritocracy, this idea that like, you really should be pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because that's what Dr. King believed in. And so that's really where the roots of that co-optation start. And I think it's like you said, the, the making of the collective memory, the, the base of it ends up being so critical for what ends up happening. Right. And, and, and I think, you know, in, in, in um, uh, discussing, you know, like you said, kind of um, Reagan's, you know, disdain for Martin Luther King and for, you know, um, the, the, what he stood for and, and, and his actions. I mean, I think that really touches upon kind of different ways that white Americans can be bigoted or racist. Right. I yeah. think, it, it, you know, in that um, you do have your kind of, for, you know, a visceral kind of like, I, you know, people who think that, that black people are inferior, that are, you know, a lower order of human beings. Like there are sadly quite a few Americans that, you know, many then and still quite a few now that just have a very kind of base visceral racism. And then you have more kind of the, the, the Reagan um, that's no, no less toxic, but in, in some sense that I often found this kind of more middle class, white, bourgeois kind of form of, of disdain for Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement that kind of grows out of this, you know, very common and, and often we could see during the Obama presidency, this notion of, you know, um, the, that, that, you know, the word uppity, right? That yes. this person doesn't know their place, mm-hmm. right? That they don't, they, they don't understand their place in the social order and and by their place meaning a subordinate place right and i think that that is a kind of strain of kind of for lack of a better term like white bourgeois bigotry and racism that still is very much present and, and it was very much a part of how republicans talked about president obama and you know many many years on from supposedly racism being solved and i i think when you were talking about reagan that just came to me as a, that really conjures that kind of white businessman kind of view, right? Or business yeah. person kind of, yeah, view. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, it's like the sociologist Eduardo Bunia Silva calls it colorblind racism. And right. it's, it's hard to stomach, right? For folks who really think like, well, I don't have a racist bone in my body, but, you know, but they subscribe to these ideas that are rooted in kind of racist ideology because they refuse to acknowledge the fact that systems of racism are still very much alive. And so I, I think that's one of the harder kind of arguments to make because it is a racism that lives beneath the surface and it's coded with a lot of kind of civility and happy faces and a real belief that anybody can make it. And I just think the unfortunate part is that it does miss the power analysis. That note of power analysis is a good, you know, maybe for for the last topic. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I've, I've really enjoyed um, hearing all of your thoughts um, and, and building off what we were just talking about in terms of Martin Luther King and his legacy. And you, you have several case studies, as you mentioned, looking at um, LGBTQ issues, immigration and nativism, Islamophobia. Um, feminism and intersectionality that all kind of, and that's a a big part of the book. Um, Everyone should read this book. And I do really, I'm not just saying this because I'm interviewing the author, but I I read a lot of academic books. I I know Dr. Uh, Yazdiha reads lots of academic books and um, some of them I think might be good, but people would find boring or overly dense and theoretical. Um, And I think this book really um, walks a balance where it is quite, um, 
um, useful and informative and, 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 you know, in my case, quite inspiring to people who are um, working in, in different scholarly pursuits or intellectual pursuits. But I do think somebody who, you know, is not working in, in a particular field or is working as an academic, um, there's just, it's so rich and it really is eye-opening and it's really, a, a, you know, a, a riveting account of, of how these processes unfolded. And these case studies are, are just packed with um, really doing the hard work of trying to uncover how these memories are made. Um, and in some ways, to me, um, uh, Dr. Yazdi, you're, you're like a, a magician because I always tell my students that, you know, because I teach classes on nation and nationalism. And I always say that it is kind of this like mysterious process. Like we come to these consensus as society or, with the, you know, particularly within Japan or Korea, which we often talk about in class, have these very strong beliefs about Koreans do X, Japanese do Y. And, and how do these things come to be? And I'm not going to say you give all the answers, but I mean, you kind of, you know, you dig up and, and uncover the mystery in, in some ways of how these things come to be. And, and I think the case studies um, do that with remarkable kind of um, uh, depth and precision. And and so um, one way to kind of parlay that, so, you know, one thing, one aspect of Dr. King's legacy and, and one that has certainly been a, a big part of attempts to um, appropriate or or reconfigure his legacy and, and who he was and what he stood for um, was that he was, you know, by all accounts, a devout Christian, a Christian pastor. pastor, um, And that was a part of his identity. I mean, a lot of his views on social justice certainly seemed to grow out of a kind of long tradition within certain Christian thought and theology around um, uh, very radical views of, of equality and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I think that really filtered into very interesting ways. So if you don't mind, I, I, you know, I don't think it's going to be possible um, time-wise to go through every, all of the case studies, but I wanted to kind of um, flesh out some of the things we've been discussing in the context of um, some of the analysis you did of, you know, struggles over surrounding uh, LGBTQ issues um, and certain laws and how, you know, um, this aspect of Martin Luther King's identity as a, as a Christian pastor, pastor, I keep saying pastor, I don't know why, <laughs> um, uh, maybe because of flock, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm saying, <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, uh, how they kind of filtered into these, um, and so in, 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 I believe you talked about, um, one case in Miami Dade County, and there was another case in North Carolina were kind yeah. of two of the central. Yeah. And, and to me, I found those fascinating in, in, in that really, you know, we, people often talk like, you know, that aren't kind of within these intellectual circles, like intersectionality, what is it, what does it mean? And I think those issues, you know, your exploration of them really start to demonstrate how these things can emerge um, in terms of the involvement of some of, uh, you know, the leaders within the black churches in these communities and divergent roles that they took and so forth. So um, I don't know, uh, you know, I I would love to hear you kind of just give a little um, um, kind of discussion or, or talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I would love to. And first of all, Kevin, thank you so much for the kind words. I'm like, you know, you spend years writing these things and then you just, you don't know, for one thing, you're like, I don't know if anyone's going to read it, but then to hear the kind words truly means the world. So no. And yeah. And and, and though I'm in, in, you know, uh, focusing on a a different um, part of the world, I mean, I I just found so much of of what you were writing. I said, I mean, I really meant that where I, I often, that's how I describe to my students. I try to make it, you know, maybe that's one of my for making it interesting, but I do say it is kind of mysterious, right? Like how <laughs> these things emerge and come about. And, and I said, I, I think um, a, one way to 
to move beyond it being mysterious is to do the kind of hard work that you've done to put together these kinds of analysis. And I, I reading, you know, kind of getting these kind of pulling these different quotations and the different thing these people said, like really brings to light, like how, you know, to, to go back to the old Bismarck quote, like how the sausage of collective memory is made um, and contested and recontested. And in, in I, I really, so um, yeah, maybe if you, you know, if you prefer to talk about, maybe it'd be better to just choose one of the cases, Miami or yeah, North Carolina. Yeah. No, I'd love to. So I think this is a really good question because so much of King's co-optation is in using him as like this kind of moral cloak like people kind of try him on and it gets their causes some moral legitimacy mm. and some gravitas. So I think thinking about the LGBTQIA movement and the way that it's opposed by the family values movement, and, you know, they call themselves family values, but it's very much like a sort of Christian right movement. And this case in Miami is, I think, one of my favorites for illustrating just how egregious the misuses of memory were. Because this is one where we're thinking about um, there's a human rights ordinance in Miami. And this is, I think, like 2000, 2001. And so it's coming out of the wake of a kind of growing backlash to the LGBTQ rights movement that's making some gains in the 90s, right? They see Bill Clinton as like their president. This is the guy that's going to give them the rights that they need, that's going to see gay rights as civil rights. And this whole time, LGBTQ movement is drawing on the memory of the civil rights movement, the tools of the civil rights movement, and a lot of the, the kind of messaging of the civil rights movement. And so sometimes you'll hear something like, you know, gay is the new black. Like this is something that comes up a lot in the movement during that era. And so this human rights ordinance has protected sexual identity within Miami, but the conservative right wants to repeal it. They don't want to protect sexual identity under the ordinance. And so they're trying to take it to a vote. And basically they, the sort of family values right-wing movement has come to understand that the LGBTQ movement is going to claim that civil rights and gay rights are equivalent. They're going to use these tools. And so they're thinking ahead about how to kind of head them off at the pass. And so what they do is they start using Dr. King's image. And so they they decide they're going to go to black churches because they figure this is where Dr. King's going to resonate most profoundly. And they use these flyers where they juxtapose images of Dr. King with an image of two men kissing. And they say Dr. King would be outraged if he knew that his legacy was being used for the homosexual agenda. And what ends up happening is that they, they create this divide. It's a kind of wedge that gets created within progressive communities because Black churches, on the one hand, have seen you know, gay rights activists as predominantly white, wealthy people. And so there is a kind of knee-jerk reaction to this movement using Dr. King's image and his memory. And it doesn't mean that they're anti-gay, but it does mean that it's a successful strategy for creating that wedge. But then on the other hand, the gay rights movement over time really has to think about the fact that by using this like black strategy, they're effectively ignoring the fact that black people can be gay, too, that there are black people within their ranks. And it's a kind of internal reckoning with the anti-blackness within the gay rights movement and thinking about how to create a more inclusive vision of what ultimately Dr. King called his beloved community, right? His vision of Christianity was one that was expansive, not one that drew boundaries. And so I think that's one of the big pieces where King's co-optation like co of his Christianity, of his morality, 
has been used in the service of these sort of hateful projects. But what's really interesting in that case is that late in the game, and so this is all in the lead up to the big vote, late in the game, the LGBTQ rights movement realizes that their opposition is doing a really good job using King because they are gaining some favor and creating some opposition to the gay rights, sort of their movement and to the human rights ordinance. And so the movement calls on Coretta Scott King, who at the time is directing the King Center. And once she learns about this, she's been an advocate for gay rights for a long time. And she submits this statement. She talks about how King believed in the beloved community, which included gay people. And she really expresses public support for the movement. And once the human rights ordinance goes to vote, and thankfully the repeal does not pass, the movement credits Coretta Scott King for that. Like they say, that was really the, the turning point. And without her, we're not sure that it would have happened. So, yeah. And so it's it's like a crazy way to think about, you know, we've thought about gay rights as civil rights for a long time. We kind of take it for granted. But for one thing, it was contested, and you know, for a long time. And I think for another, we don't know, like we often don't hear about how on the ground we had, there was active opposition. Like there was an active Christian right that was working to, you know, head them off at the past, like I said, really to discredit their uses of civil rights memory. Right. And I, and I think, you know, reading the your, your recounting of that and, and the case in North Carolina, um, you know, in, and you had mentioned, um, you know, I think you I might even use this exact term earlier. I mean, it really demonstrates, too, how messy these things are. Right. They are. Um, Once you kind of dig in and um, it can, you know, create a, you know, kind of we might have these clear pictures of how these things are going to line up. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if this is a really old reference, like the Etch-A-Sketch. It just kind of yes. shakes it, shakes it all up and and scrambles it. And um, and, and you know, what comes out of that, too, is, is you know, this whole what in reading this, it, I kind of got this image of like we kind of a struggle to one, create these avatars and then two, um, as you kind of mentioned, to kind of place them in this in in the context of, of of a certain movement and and how you know what what was fascinating about the story is how it kind of got had to get snapped back to some reality of the woman who who knew Martin Luther King the best yes. um understood his thinking the best to add a kind of you know almost like a I kind of think it's like this ha- you know kind of quantum like haze and it took some figure who was like no I knew Martin Luther King you know I know how he thinks more than anybody and he certainly would not be in favor of denying basic rights and liberties to this community. So to me, that whole arc really was fascinating, right? Because, you, yeah. you know, and, and it, it also demonstrates that, um, you know, it, there's a struggle to kind of append, um, whereas, you know, certainly there was, a, a, you know, a gay rights movement. There was, you know, a struggle for equality, you know, at the time of and, and before um, yes. Dr. King was around in various forms, but nonetheless, it wasn't an issue de jour, so as to say. And 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 to my understanding, there's very little Martin Luther King ever said about this one way or another. Is that's correct? Yeah, yeah. Although you know, one of the big examples is that he he continued to have Bayard Rustin in his inner circle, who was right. you know a gay black man and one of the key organizers of the March on Washington. Yeah. And like, you know, King's inner circle was like, you might need to get rid of him. Like this doesn't look good for you. And he refused. And so I actually think in that way that he did have a pretty strong stance on it. It, it wasn't explicit in terms of outspoken mm, words. But. Right. 
No, and I, I, I think that's, and I, I remember that um, reading that from the book, but, but I think that gets into that, you know, um, there often it, it, it kind of ties into this idea of, of, of memory making, where even if there's not a specific one to one, like there's an effort to kind of we have to imagine and, and in some ways kind of try to reconstruct yes. um, an outlook on issues, and, and I think certainly I, I wholeheartedly, you know, um, agree that that you know, all the, all we know, all the evidence we have would, would lead to the conclusion that Martin Luther King would certainly support, um, you know, treating people in the LGBTQ community with dignity and, and care um, equal to everyone else. So I think that, that case to me is, is um, pretty easy to, 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 to um, uh, grasp. But I do think that what you identified though, is that, that this kind of struggle to create an, a, a kind of um, an, an avatar of, of Martin Luther King that would somehow, you know, be this kind of um, Bible thumping, kind mm-hmm. of condemning Christian who was going to like lash out at people who are condemned as, as you know, in the Old Testament. You know, it, it's really fascinating. And how more than that, it's fascinating that people did that, but how much resonance that was able to capture um, within large segments of the population I thought was um and 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 it really demonstrates how these things, as you mentioned throughout, take on kind of this almost lifelike um, form and, and and development. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm happy you like you really caught it. Like you got the crux of the book. That means so much. All right. Well, I, you know, if I now I feel like if I, I should take your class, I could write a, I could write a good essay on the book. <laughs> Um, no, but I, I, you know, and I, I really, um, you know, of course, I mean, you know, totally frank, I wouldn't have someone on the the show here and then like trash their book or anything, but, (laughs) um, what made it easy was I really did enjoy the book and I really did profit from it, um, quite significantly intellectually. So it made it, I I say that, you know, much easier for me to be effusive in my praise because, um, it's quite genuine and, um, it's really what I, I, I said, I, I'm, my whole kind of thing is to try to dig into the granularity of history and, and to, to kind of understand how these things came about. And, and I think um, I, I really meant it. I wrote to you in the email yesterday that it was inspiring. Like, okay, this is like, cause I, I'm actually in beginning at the very beginnings of a, of a book project um, that Ooh. is trying to do somewhat similar things. And so um, I, I, what you know, inspiring that could be seem like, maybe a little bit overwrought, but, um, it quite in my case, it really was inspiring. Like, okay, this is what can be done. Um, and this is a way to go about trying to, to dig up, um, how memory kind of is formed and weighs in on contemporary political issues. So I, I mean, oh, I'm a, so excited about that. And well, right. you'll have to have me come back and reverse interview you. <laughs> well, yeah, well, as you mentioned, it could be, yeah, we could be talking about, uh, you know, 2032 or something. So. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> right. Well, Dr. Yezia, thank you so much. It's been such a um, pleasure to read your fascinating book and, and, and quite an honor for me to be able to speak with the author and, and ask the questions that I had. I, I feel quite um, fortunate to be able to do that. Oh, likewise, Kevin, this has been such a joy. So thank you for having me. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs>